bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person, born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, November 5th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of muckraking journalist Ida Tarbell. She was born on this day in 1857. I am recording this on the morning of November 4th from the U.S., we are still awaiting the election results, so if I sound a bit far away, I hope you can understand why. Doing this podcast has been an amazing thing to focus on during such a fractious time in this country, but yesterday and today, the anxiety has just peaked. And if I had a nickel for every time I refreshed NPR's election page, I could quit my day job. But at this point, it's a matter of waiting and counting. By the time you hear this on the 5th, it may be decided, or we may still be in limbo. This is a perilous time. And I feel it's very timely that today, November 5th, we're going to be learning about a woman who took down an entire corrupt empire using only the power of journalism. Like Rose Valland, who we talked about on the first, I learned about Ida on an episode of Drunk History. And I was just blown away by the cast iron guts that this woman had. She took on Standard Oil, the largest fuel monopoly in the world, led by one of the most crooked and ruthless robber barons, John D. Rockefeller. She took him on using only a typewriter, and she brought a dirty dynasty to its knees. It was her and her alone whose work helped to bring about the Hepburn Act of 1906, the Mann-Elkins Act of 1910, the creation of the Federal Trade Commission, and the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914. She revolutionized the way business was done in America, and she did it all using only her words. Ida was born in her grandfather's log cabin in Hatch Hollow, Pennsylvania. Her parents, Esther and Franklin, were both teachers, and they would have three more kids, Franklin Jr., Walter, and Sarah. Little Franklin and Sarah both came down with scarlet fever when they were kids, and Sarah made it through, but she had lifelong health issues. But unfortunately, little Franklin did not survive. Franklin Sr. had decided to switch career paths from teaching to being an oil man, as that seemed to be a much more lucrative position at that time. Oil was just kind of all the rage. However, the panic of 1857, which was a financial crisis in the U.S. caused by an overextended domestic economy, struck when Esther was pregnant with Ida, and that caused the family to lose all of their savings. So Franklin had been in the midst of building a home for his family in Iowa when the bottom fell out, and he had to stop construction and literally walk back home across Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, penniless and pretty depressed. When he ran out of money for food, he would pick up teaching work at rural schools and then hit the road again once he had a few dollars in his pocket. By the time he got home and met his daughter for the first time, she was 18 months old. Upon seeing this dirty, bedraggled stranger at her door, Ida walked up to him and said, Go away, you bad man. When Ida was two, the 1859 Pennsylvania oil rush began, started in the now-named Oil Creek Valley by a guy named Edward Drake when he struck rock oil. So refineries started to pop up everywhere, and with all the fast money came a bunch of hucksters and swindlers. The family moved to a shack in an oil field where Franklin eked out a living making wooden oil storage tanks. Ida grew up surrounded in oil. It covered the ground and the grass, it permanently stained her shoes and her clothes, and the air was just pitch black with refinery smoke. She lived in a filthy black world and she hated it. She later wrote that no industry of man in its early days has ever been more destructive of beauty, order, decency than the production of petroleum. At the age of three, the family relocated to Rouseville, Pennsylvania, and it was there that Ida had a few traumatic experiences that would stay with her throughout her life and kind of give her an overall negative opinion towards the petroleum business. 
First, the founder of the city and her neighbor, Henry Rouse, was drilling for oil when a flame hit natural gas coming from a nearby pump and exploded, killing 18 men. Henry lived a few more hours after the explosion, and he managed to scribble out a will, and he left his million-dollar estate to the townspeople to build roads. Later, three local women were cooking in a kitchen when there was a gas explosion which killed them all. Ida had been forbidden to go into the house where the women were awaiting burial, but being a curious child, she snuck into the room where their burned corpses were, and the image would give her nightmares for the rest of her life. By the time Ida was 12, the oil boom in Rouseville had died down, and the family relocated to Titusville, where Franklin used scrap lumber and fixtures from the abandoned Bonta Hotel in the charmingly named city of Pithole to patch together a home for his family. Franklin was nothing if not tenacious, and he doubled down on his oil work, becoming a refiner and a producer. And things seemed to be looking up for the family, financially speaking, until the 1872 South Improvement Company scheme took place. This was a shady puppet company created by big oil and railroad barons, including John D. Rockefeller, with the intent of snatching up standard oil uh, competitors, which it did, securing 22 out of the 26 in the area. Basically, what they were doing was the oil guys were quietly working with the railroad guys to raise the rates on oil shipment, but only for little guys like Franklin. The oil guys at South Improvement Company got fat discounts for transporting their oil, pushing all competition who didn't get on their crooked ship out of business. Franklin was justifiably outraged, and he was part of protests against the company and was even part of mobs who pushed over standard oil tankers. The state of Pennsylvania finally shut the company down, but Rockefeller emerged unscathed like a cockroach. But by this time, Franklin and many other smaller oil guys had been put out of business by this scheme. Things were all kinds of crazy and stressful on the outside, but thankfully, Ida had a very strong, loving, and progressive family, unity protecting her from that. Esther and Franklin were very social, they were popular, they were suffragists, they were prohibitionists. On weekends, they attended Methodist Church, and they were both voracious readers and consumers of news. So Ida was able to follow along with the events of the Civil War, actually, through all the papers that were coming into her home. Ida was a sharp kid, but like a lot of smart kids, very bored in school. The only subject that she really loved was science. So after she graduated head of her class, she got a degree in biology at Algaheny College. She was actually the only woman in her entire graduating class. And she followed this up with a master's. But when she left school, she found herself kind of floundering for direction. She wanted to do something important and helpful socially. But being a woman, there were a few options for work outside of teaching. So she became a teacher at Poland Union Seminary in Ohio. And she hated it. Like today, the caseload was way too much and the pay was way too little. Ida had to teach geology, botany, geometry, trig, Greek, Latin, French, and German. And after two years, she burned out and went back home albeit on her parents' dime, because her teaching job didn't even pay her enough to afford train fare. So she goes back home and she meets this guy named Theodore Flood. He was the editor of a paper called the Chautauquan, and it was kind of a curriculum-based pamphlet slash paper for home study courses. Theodore ends up asking Ida if she would work for him as a writer, and she agreed. But she was so amazing that she soon became managing editor, and it was during this time that she actually developed her signature style of investigative journalism extreme attention to detail, a bloodlust for facts and accuracy, rigid moral code, and a fiercely unwavering set of convictions. 
When a writer named Mary Lowe Dickinson published an article saying that there were only 300 women with patents in the U.S., which showed that women would never be legit inventors, Ida traveled all the way to the patent office in D.C. to do some detectiving, which resulted in her response article correcting Mary and pointing out that actually there were over 2,000 patents registered to women in the U.S. So Ida was getting tired of working under flood, though, and after a falling out, she decided to strike out on her own. The exact reason of the falling out has kind of been a source of speculation, with some historians saying it was because Flood insisted on putting his son's name above Tarbell's on the masthead. But some other historians kind of think that it may have been more of an intimate nature, possibly even a breach of promise issue, which caused her family to actually seek revenge on Flood. Back then, a breach of promise was usually code for he took my virginity, saying that he was going to marry me and then he dumped me. Not saying that's what happened to our girl, but it's been hinted at. So Ida up and moved to Paris by herself at the age of 34. Yes, her. Being unmarried at 34 was shocking enough at that time, but international travel without a husband or a chaperone was just straight up scandalous. But Ida absolutely lived her best life for the three years that she was there, as any single woman in Paris should do. She shares an apartment with her three girlfriends from the Chautauquan, and they enjoyed trips to the recently finished Eiffel Tower, and they went to the Moulin Rouge, and they went to gallery showings by Degas and Monet and Manet. They visited Notre Dame, and they went to lectures at the Sorbonne, they hosted bilingual salons in their flat, and enjoyed weekly dinners with all the building's tenants put on by their landlady. Ida supported herself during this time by doing freelance writing for American papers with Paris offices. There was one dark spot, though, during her time in Paris, and that was the news that not only had her father's business partner committed suicide, leaving Franklin flat broke yet again, but Oil Creek had flooded and flammable material on the water had ignited a massive blaze and over 150 people were dead. So she was on pins and needles until she received a one-word telegram from her dad that said, safe. So around this time, Samuel McClure, publisher of the brand new McClure's magazine, was starting to read more and more of Ida's articles, and he liked what he saw. So he told his partner they needed Ida for the magazine, which had been created for the average middle-class reader, which he felt Ida spoke to. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. But on the trip to France, he showed up at her doorstep and he offered her an editor position. He had become so caught up in talking to her about his ideas that he stayed too long, Missed his train and he had to borrow 40 bucks off of her to catch another one. She wrote the money off as lost, but he sent it back the next day. But Ida was kind of unsure about helming a brand new magazine with virtually zero audience. So she agreed to come on as a writer, but not an editor quite yet. Ida was given the freedom to write about what fascinated her, though. Female Parisian intellectuals, science, all of her favorite topics. She even got to do an interview with Louis Pasteur. She really started to like the freedom in her work and finally agreed to sign a full-time contract with McClure's magazine for $3,000 a year, which today is about $90,000 a year. So she comes back from Paris in the summer of 1894, and she moves to New York City. In June, Samuel asks her to write a biographical series on Napoleon Bonaparte to compete with one that their rival, Century Magazine, was planning. It was super rushed assignment. She called it a biography on a gallop, and the first installment was due six weeks after Samuel asked her to start the project. So she stays at the home of lawyer and community leader Gardner Green Hubbard at this 17-acre estate that he has in D.C., and this allowed her unprecedented access to his vast collection of Napoleon material as well as the Library of Congress. 
And this was her training ground for biographical writing, and she was influenced by one piece of advice and one popular theory of the day. The advice that she was given by historian Herbert Adams of John Hopkins University, he told her that all good biographical writing focuses on the objective interpretation of primary sources, which she took deeply to heart. And the popular theory of the day was that something called the great man theory. And that's pretty much what it sounds like, the theory that history can be explained by the actions of great men. This series of articles that she did on Napoleon not only cemented her reputation as a standout writer, but it also doubled McClure's circulation to over 100,000, cementing her importance at the magazine. The articles became a book whose royalties for the rest of Ida's life allowed her to live quite comfortably. Her next assignment, though, was also something to compete with Century Magazine. They were going to do a biopic on the life of Lincoln. Ida had always been fascinated by Lincoln. She remembers as a child her father coming home from work with the news that Lincoln had been murdered, and her mother covering her face with her apron and running into the bedroom crying. So the series that Century Magazine was planning on doing was written by Lincoln's two private secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay. So Samuel was kind of like, I don't know what else there is to write about, though, because these two guys know everything about Lincoln's political career. But Ida had a new angle. She wanted to look at Lincoln from the point of view of his childhood, there wasn't a lot known about it at that time. It was kind of vague. So she put in the work and she traveled through the rural areas of Kentucky and Illinois, interviewing hundreds of people that knew him, sending hundreds more letters to other people asking for Lincoln memorabilia. And this turned up hundreds of never before seen photos and Lincoln letters. And this was part of Lincoln's life that his secretaries were not familiar with. And the country absolutely loved finding out more about the childhood and the beginnings of such a beloved man. This was a 20-part series, and it skyrocketed McClure's magazine to a circulation of over 300,000, surpassing their rival Century magazine, which sniffed that they got a girl to write the life of Lincoln. At this point, Ida was exhausted. There was so much research and travel and stressful deadlines. So she decided to go to something kind of on fashion for the day, which was called taking the waters. Today we call it hydrotherapy. So she goes to take the waters, kind of like a rest cure, at Clifton Springs Sanitarium in New York. And for the rest of her life, whenever she was feeling kind of stressed out by work, she would always go back there for hydrotherapy treatments. So 1899, she becomes the desk editor at McClure's and her salary is raised to five grand a year, which is about 150 grand today. Ida was also made part owner and given shares in the company. Early 1900s, McClure's decides that its job as a magazine, its mission, was to expose the social ills that were being ignored in America. A recent series of articles on true crime had been really successful, and they were looking for their next big story. So Ida and McClure get together with the rest of the editors, and they start looking at the idea of writing about trusts, specifically sugar and steel. These ideas were kind of batted around for a bit before Ida decided that doing an expose on Standard Oil made more sense. One, because she had a personal connection to their crooked practices, as she watched firsthand how it decimated her family, and Standard Oil was helmed by only one person, John D. Rockefeller. So Ida went to Europe to get the okay from McClure, who had just gone over there to rest up at a sanitarium. He loved the idea, and they decided to use a biographical format serial like she had done with Napoleon and Lincoln. So in 1901, she hands off her desk editor position to another staff member, and she begins a deep dive into the origins of Standard Oil. Samuel had been on board with this, but Ida's dad, Franklin, knowing firsthand just how ruthless Rockefeller could be, 
was frightened for his daughter's safety, both professionally and personally. And apparently word was also getting around, too, because one of Rockefeller's bankers threatened to cut off financial assistance to the magazine, to which Ida said, of course, that makes no difference to me. So Ida travels the country interviewing railroad companies and smaller oil companies and digging through political records and private materials that she was allowed to view, which was all pointing to the same conclusion. Standard Oil had used illegal strong-arm tactics to destroy competition. Rockefeller was obviously a little unnerved at what was going on because he had ordered all of the copies of an 1873 book called The Rise and Fall of the South Improvement Company destroyed, as it basically filleted his corrupt puppet company, which had brought about the demise of Franklin's fledgling oil company. But Ida managed to find one copy that had escaped destruction on a shelf at the New York Public Library. And there would be another big break in the form of a well-intentioned saboteur inside Standard Oil. A young office boy, his name was lost to time, worked at Standard Oil headquarters, and he had been ordered to destroy hundreds of records which showed that railroads had been giving Standard Oil advance notice about refiner shipments, allowing them to undercut the refiners. The office boy noticed that his Sunday school teacher's name was on a few of the documents because he worked as a refiner as well. And the boy smuggled these documents out of Standard Oil headquarters and gave them to a Sunday school teacher who passed them on to Ida. The first serial appeared in McClure's magazine and it just explodes. It was all anybody could talk about and Ida Tarbell became a household name. Ida had buddied it up with Mark Twain and he introduced her to the number three man at Standard Oil, Henry Rogers. Henry shockingly not only agreed to do an interview with Ida, but the normally tight-lipped robber baron just started running his mouth about all the comings and goings of Standard Oil. It's possible he thought she was doing a puff piece on him at first. Maybe he thought he was flirting with her. But for whatever reason, he bizarrely kept letting her interview him, even as more and more episodes of the story came out and his company's name was being dragged through the mud. So... Did he actually like her, or was his ego so big that he couldn't fathom that she would write anything negative about him? No one knows, but as long as his lips kept flapping, her pen kept moving. And this was the start of two things. Number one, muckraking journalism, or the practice of exposing corrupt officials and organizations in print. The term was actually coined by Teddy Roosevelt, and Ida didn't like it. She preferred to be called a historian. And number two, it was the start of investigative journalism. Yeah, Ida pretty much invented investigative journalism. Up until this point, writing about a person usually involved talking to them or people that knew them. But this whole practice of searching the nation for thousands of scattered documents to piece together an accurate portrait of a man and a company, that was new and Ida was the first to do it. The last installation of the series was a two-part on Rockefeller himself. And he evidently didn't find it very flattering because he began to refer to Ida as Miss tar barrel. I mean, she did call him a living mummy in her article. So, But the finished collection of serials, later published as a best-selling book entitled The History of the Standard Oil Company, led to the dissolution of Standard Oil as a monopoly, and it was broken down into smaller, yet still gigantic corporations like Chevron and ExxonMobil. And it led to the creation of the Clayton Antitrust Act, the Hepburn Act, which oversaw the railroad company, the Mann-Elkins Act, which handed oil pricing control over to Interstate Commerce Commission, and the Federal Trade Commission's creation. By 1906, Samuel McClure had become a horrible person to work for. He was rarely there, and his behavior was super erratic, possibly due to alcoholism, and he would often just show up and contradict Ida and then leave. So she had enough, and her and four other editors left and started the American magazine. 
They said their intent with the magazine was to focus on what was right in America, not on what was wrong. So Ida took an associate editor position there until they sold American Magazine to Crowell Publishing in 1911, and she went back to freelance writing. During that time, she wrote a lot of flattering pieces on Henry Ford's work ethic and the assembly line production and his fair treatment of workers. Like most of the people on this show, Ida had a small part of her life that today we may kind of tilt our head at. For all of her gifts and power and independence and courage and feistiness, she did not consider herself a feminist. She was not a suffragette, and this really upset her mom. And she found that being a suffragette was actually anti-male, and she said that women should embrace home life and motherhood, which is kind of interesting considering that she never got married or had kids. But she held on to this stance, which made her women's rights friends pretty pissed at her until women got the right to vote in 1920. And then she switched her stance and came out saying that not only should women have the right to vote, but when asked if a woman could ever be president, she listed many countries that had been run successfully by queens. And this started to make the activists who had fought for the vote warm up to her a little bit. But everyone was kind of thrown for another loophole a few years later when she wrote a series of flattering articles on Mussolini comparing him to Napoleon. I don't know. We all do weird stuff sometimes. But she spent the rest of her life doing freelance work, uh, mostly about women's working conditions and needing better pay, and living at her 40-acre farm in Connecticut. During World War II, Wilson appointed her to the Women's Committee of the Council of National Defense, which was tasked with mobilizing the American women to help with the war effort. Ida died of pneumonia after struggling with Parkinson's disease for years in 1944 at the age of 86. My sources today were Wikipedia, Drunk History, Smithsonian Magazine, and PBS. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Ida Tarbell. Please join me tomorrow, November 6th, when we celebrate the birth and life of Mickey Schwerner, civil rights activist who was murdered by the KKK. See you then.